Thank you, Charlene, for that exceedingly gracious introduction. I have sometimes joked about Charlene. She is such a sweet person, such a sweet person. You cannot believe a word she says outside this pulpit. <laughs> and now I'm going to have to amend that. <laughs> it's a delight to be with you this morning. Will you join me in prayer? Be in our words, O Lord, and in our understanding. Be in our hearts and in the loves we bring. Be in our lives and set us to praise, for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks to a powerful spiritual, a lot of people know something about Joshua and how he fit the battle of Jericho. About how Joshua led God's people to victory over the Philistines by marching seven times around the walled city and the walls, as you know, came a-tumbling down. Today's text tells a lesser-known story, a kind of a pre-story, of how God rolled back the waters of Jordan so that the nation of ancient Israel could cross over to face Jericho, and of how God directed the people to remember and commemorate that moment, that miracle. It's a story that could use its own spiritual, no doubt, and I don't know, one of these days, one of these children, maybe will write that for us. For now, hear the story of Joshua captured in the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua, verses one through nine. Listen for the word of God to you. When the entire nation had finished crossing over Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, select 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, take 12 stones from here out of the middle of the river, from the place where the priest's feet stood, carry them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Then Joshua summoned the 12 men from the Israelites whom he had appointed, one from each tribe. Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on your shoulder, one for each of the tribes of the Israelites, so that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off so these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. The Israelites did as Joshua commanded. They took up 12 stones out of the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. As the Lord told Joshua, they carried them over to the place where they had camped, and they laid them down there. Joshua did set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Before the sevens came the twelve. Before the seven trumpets, the seven trips around the tumble-down city, the seven priests, the seven days, there were twelve. Twelve, a substantial number, very complete. 
Before the destruction, the crumbling stones, the falling down and the running away, before the end of life as Jericho knew it, 12. 12, not seven, although seven is considered the perfect number. Before the judges and the wide, well-watered plains, the heavy fruit and the milk and honey, 12. A number more perfect than perfect, more complete than complete. 12 gorgeous river rocks. The palms of 12 Levitical feet wrapping their surface. 12 big fat stones. There must have been some discussion about the configuration, don't you suppose? What do you think it was? Um, six, three, two, one, five, four, two, one. What's not in dispute in this story is the substance, the heft. 12. In the stories of Joshua, in the Cecil B. DeMille, swashbuckling Indiana Jones stories recorded in the book of Joshua, a number of important biblical themes are established, but none more important than the question of these 12 stones. What do these stones mean? When your children shall ask you in years to come, what will you say these stones mean? East of the River Jordan and on the northern lip of the Dead Sea, the ancient Israel is perched, toes on the door sill of the promised land. Moses is gone and all the original wanderers with him. God's big promise is finally being delivered on to the children and the grandchildren of the Exodus. Talk about your liminal moment. I remember reading once the, uh, the work of a famous cultural anthropologist who was interested in what scholars call liminality, transition, especially about transitions for communities. Surprisingly, the scholar came down uh, to the main point of the chapter that I'm recalling and briefly left off from the dense scholarly prose that was his trademark. In the chapter I'm recalling, he resorted to metaphor, the cards go up in the air, this erudite technical scholar said. The cards go up in the air. Norms and mores and all the pieces of life just tumble together. He resumed his customary style. The hallmark of liminality, he said, <laughs> is this ludic recombination of norms. Ludic, playful, unpredictable recombination of the rules of living. I, I don't know why that phrase has stuck with me for so long. Perhaps I thought he made it sound like more fun than it actually is. <laughs> Liminality, transition, cards go up in the air. Our feet feel like they are just paddling in thin air underneath us. Not that we need anthropologists or Joshua or anybody really to tell us how it feels. Transition, whether it's graduation or promotion or retirement, moving in or moving out or coupling up, everyone here knows what it is to come to the edge of the river and wonder how we are going to make this transition. Like you, I've been watching the footage of Maui this week, the burned out buildings, 
businesses, homes, lives swept away, the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. Cheerful survivors and reporters holding microphones under their chin, you know, something about all that. Something about the husks of the building, that, um, that twisted steel thing that took me right back to the defining era or what I think of as the defining era of our generation. The one that happened with the twisted steel beams piercing to the sky 22 years ago. Did you know that there's no stronger bedrock in the world than what the New York Sky City scrapers are built on? 450 million year old Manhattan schist. There's a word that you have to pronounce very carefully. <laughs> and a few other minerals provide the geologic foundation on which New York City is built. It's often said that New York reaches the towering heights that it does because of its strong foundation. I don't know if there's anybody here this morning, perhaps there could be, that was in New York on 9-11, but of course you don't have to have been there to have been there to know about sickness of heart, the fear of the future. But as we look back on that event from the vantage point of all these years, I am struck, I am still so struck by the deep uncertainty that was unleashed in all of us, in our culture, in our country by the waves of violence and grief, greed and rage that seemed to have been set in motion during that time. The surprising ways that event seems to have driven folks farther from the church. Uncertainty. In our terrorized world these days, and perhaps especially these days for the church, there's plenty that would make you want to look around to grab the nearest handful of feldspar. It's hard not to be concerned. It's hard not to be concerned about Christianity in America, about the two-thirds of the baby boomer generation that has left the church, about their children and grandchildren who may or may not find their way in. I was at a conference of seminary deans a number of years ago now where a famous professional pollster was the speaker, and he admitted during question and answer period that at that point, 40 to 60% of the country were still telling pollsters that they were going to church. He admitted that everybody in his business knew that it was much lower than that. 15%, he said. Less, of course, in the Nun Zone, N-O-N-E, Nun Zone, that beautiful strip of country that starts in Seattle and extends right on down the western coast of the United States across Telegraph Ave and down, petering out somewhere around Saratoga. <laughs> Wade Clark Roof, the sociologist, uh, Wade Clark Roof has dubbed our part of the country the nun zone because of the large number of disaffected people that live here. People who, when they are admitted to the hospital and asked to state a religious preference check, none. Some estimates say 3% of the population in my county, that would be Marin County just across the way, 3% of the population in my county go to church. 
It's hard not to be concerned about the future of the faith, about the future of Christianity in America of the 21st century, about the fine congregations out there that are struggling, about the good seminaries that are selling off property, the noble denominations collapsing under their own weight. It's the kind of thing that would make you look around for the schist, isn't it? Where is our quartz, our feldspar, our mica? Where is our piece of the rock? Why can't we as a church, as a nation, seem to get across our 21st century Jordans? Are we lacking something, do you suppose? There, is there a resource that ancient Israel had that we don't have? It's incredibly daunting, the task of trying to save the 21st century church. What shall we tell the children, indeed? Where can we get the stuff that we need to rebuild, reboot, and rebound to make sure that there is something there for them at that baptismal fount in all the years to come, that there is something there something ultimately more compelling and trustworthy, something that a life can be built on more so than TikTok. What do you think of Joshua's answer? Where shall we get what we need to rebuild, reboot, and rebound? What do you think of Joshua's answer? Look under your feet, the story says. Right under your feet. Stepping stones, foundation material, schist and granite and quartz and feldspar winking in the sun and not just a few pieces of foundational material, but 12. You see, in the Sumerian and Babylonian cultures that lie behind the book of Joshua, the number 12 is considered the perfect number. A number, in fact, more perfect than perfect, more complete than complete. Twelve, especially applicable to governance, organizations, systems, and structures. Twelve tribes, twelve disciples, twelve gates to the city. There you go. Joshua says to us across the years and across the miles, a reminder. Look under your feet all the fodder you need to worship, commemorate, build up, or raise your Ebenezer. Oh, Joshua says, you didn't see that? You Levites, you, you bearers of the Ark of the Covenants, you were perhaps thinking that you were responsible for carrying God across the river on your back. You were concentrating on making the ark, making sure that that ark survived the trip, nothing got jolted or dropped. I understand, of course. You are indeed a very responsible tribe of Presbyterians. <laughs> but I have to tell you this, my friend. While you were focusing so ferociously on what you were carrying on your back, God was already supporting your feet already supporting your feet. Now, I don't know if you want to listen to Joshua or not. 
If you even feel like a Levite today, maybe, maybe not, but I think you should listen to the 12. All we need to continue the life that God has called us to, Joshua's story suggests, all we need is survived, supplied, more perfect than perfect, more complete than complete. I think we should listen to the 12. What do you think? Could it be that in the ordinary material of its everyday life, the church has what it needs? Like ancient Israel, could it be that we have enough not only to cross over the Jordan, but to memorialize the moment for future generations? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say the witness not only of Joshua, but of Deborah and Barak and Samuel, of Jesus and Priscilla and the Twelve, is that there is enough. We have what we need. God has given us what we need to continue the worshiping life of the church and its work in the world. We have a veritable quarry of what we need in the genius of our hymns and the poignancy of our faith stories, in the fervency of our prayers and the explosion of the postlude, in the eagerness of the youth to be green and the willingness of our elders to lend advice. We have it. Most of all, most of all, in the grace of God that drips silently in the heart, building up layer upon layer of spiritual granite, crystallizing compassion, distilling love in a believer. God's love for you and your love for God are the bedrock of your life. God's love for the church and the church's love for God is the bedrock of our faith. God has given us what we need. Like all great bedrock, it is lying crystallized at the bottom of our soul. I don't know if there's anybody here this morning that was here in 1960, could be, yesterday at the uh, beautiful memorial service uh, for Sally Hudgen, Paul Yeager was preaching, lovely sermon, and he mentioned that, he, he quoted Bob Munger, and he mentioned that there was nobody in the room yesterday afternoon who had been there in 1960, and he was wrong. <laughs> So I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> it could be there's somebody here who goes back to 1960. And if you do, you might remember that just kitty corner to this, where this church sits now, there sat, sat for many years a great sister congregation of ours, First Congregational. First Congo, as the seminarians call it. That church was pastored all through the 60s and most of the 70s by an incredible pastor and preacher named Brown Barr. Died a number of years ago at the age of 92, having lived a long, lovely, loving life. Brown had taught preaching at Yale as a young man and before coming to Berkeley in 1960 had pastored, but mostly he was known as a teacher of preachers. From tear gassing to busing to Eldridge Cleaver, he preached through it all, as did the wonderful preachers who staffed this pulpit during those years. Brown had a talent for forming lifelong friendships with other preachers. William Sloan Coffin had been his student at Yale, and the two remained close 
until Brown's death. And in his later years, Brown lavished his mentoring skills on a group of lucky young preachers. I pretty much forced my way into that group by persuading him to let me make him the subject of my dissertation. <laughs> Gaining access to Brown and his world was one of the great privileges of my highly privileged life. He was beloved of all of his mentees, though, and not in that sloppy, sentimental kind of a way that we sometimes talk about mentors and young preachers. Oh, no, this was a acerbic wit, an unblinking blue gaze, and the willingness to lay it on the line with you, whether it was about the weight you'd gained, the skirt you'd worn, or that cheesy sermon illustration you'd used. Several years ago now, Brown succumbed to the kind of illness many preachers dread. A stroke took much of his ability to speak. Poignantly, it left intact his fluency, his, his inflection, you know, characteristic speech patterns. He has a way of starting a sentence with, well. But it put an end to his ability to construct sentences, maintain a line of thought. I don't suppose I heard a clear sentence from him more than one or two times in the years after the stroke. However, our last visit with him was extraordinary. He was in a playful mood, affectionate and teasing. My husband and I were astonished at how that old feeling of connection came through. I was struck again about the bittersweetness of it all the deeply familiar sounds and the nonsensical content. It was a busy day at the care facility. More people than usual sat around that nice little living room area visiting. Still, there was plenty of room for us and we pulled his wheelchair perpendicular to the couch that we were sitting on and we had no problem hearing each other. Soon though, I noticed Brown tracking movement through the room. The attendant walked by several times. Uh, once he wheeled another patient in and got her settled in a chair against the wall. But mostly he was just adjusting pillows, I think, you know, keeping an eye out. There was something about his back and forth movement that seemed to unsettle Brown, though. And on the third or fourth time the attendant passed by, Brown's arms strained against the armrests of his wheelchair lifting his body up and out. He caught the attendant's eye and he said with crystal bell clarity, do you need this chair? The line echoed in our hearing, do you need this chair? A lifetime of jumping up, offering, deferring, giving. A lifetime of saying to couples on the other end of the study desk, to elderly parishioners standing awkwardly at the end of the potluck line, to latecomers to the Sunday school class, and to uncertain newcomers, please sit here, take my chair. Can I give you a chair? A lifetime crystallized at the bottom of his soul. Those who specialize for caring for people in the last stages of life often observe that we die the way we live. That what is really deeply true about us is what comes out at the end. 
It's as if our bedrock starts to show, as if it pushes up in us the way the 450 million year old schist under New York City pushes up in the rocky outcroppings of its parks. How firm a foundation, the hymn says, linking saints to their faith in God's word, fair enough. But when the faith is in God's love, and when that love works in and out of us, when that love of God's works through a human life, it makes the strongest imaginable foundation. What shall we tell the children? Let us tell them that there is a loving Savior, that there is a balm in Gilead, that there is a comforter who has promised to come and lead them through their Jordans, and oh yes, there is a bedrock on which they can build their lives more perfect than perfect, more complete than complete, strong enough to support a towering life a faithful congregation, or even the 21st century church. May it be so. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.